Welcome to episode 5 of the Heart Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the disparities that exist in our communities pertaining to HIV prevention and mental health. Our guests bring unique and intentional experiences that ultimately help capture the needs of historically marginalized populations in order to bring about substantive change. Joining me for this conversation is my friend and colleague, Kelly Schlabach, who is a doctoral student in the Learning, Leadership, and Education Policy Program at UConn. Prior to starting graduate school, Kelly worked as a case manager at the University of Denver and brings an important perspective to this episode. Thank you again for co-hosting with me, Kelly. Our first guest, Martine Granby, is a nonfiction filmmaker, producer, and video journalist. She is an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut, focusing on documentary filmmaking. She holds a joint appointment in the Africana Studies Institute and is also an affiliate of UConn's Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. She has worked as a documentarian, producer, editor, video journalist, and educator for the New York Times, Cardam Quinn Films, the Doc X program at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies, the New School, City Bureau, Union Docs, and BRIC TV. Her creative research focuses on interrogations of and material experimentation with family and collective moving image archives, ethical considerations of found footage usage, and discourses around mental health in BIPOC communities. Our second guest, Manuel Gutierrez, is a prep navigator with Chicanos por la Causa, a nonprofit organization with deep roots in Phoenix, Arizona. Their division of LUCIS, which stands for Latinos Unidos contra el SIDA, or Latinos United Against AIDS, provides HIV prevention education and supportive services to people living with or at risk of HIV AIDS to improve health outcomes, reduce health disparities, and address barriers to treatment. Prior to his role at CPLC, Manuel worked with undocumented and mixed status families in the Phoenix metro area, providing them with resources and also worked in public relations, sharing pertinent information with the community. I appreciate you all joining us for this important conversation. Let's jump right in. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. All right, wonderful, wonderful. So thank you all so, so much for joining us for episode five of the Heart Podcast. And I'm really excited, particularly not only because of our guests, but also the amazing co-host that is joining me today, my friend and colleague, Kelly Schlavak. Kelly, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hey, y'all. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like I've been behind the scenes quite a bit, so it's awesome to get a chance to participate. And so thanks so much, Omar, for the invitation, especially on a subject that I'm so passionate about. Um, so hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Schlavak. My pronouns are she and they. I love when people alternate them. So um, that would be great. I'm currently a PhD student in the University of Connecticut in the Learning, Leadership, and Education Policy Program. Um, I am white and I identify as queer, women, and non-binary. Um, I work as a graduate assistant at the Office for Diversity and Inclusion, and previously I was a case manager at the University of Denver working with students experiencing personal or academic difficulties and connecting them to resources. Beautiful. And for our audience, let me just say that Kelly's introduction doesn't even begin to encapsulate her amazingness and all that she contributes to so many spaces. So thank you again for, for joining us today. And, you know, with our, with our guests as well, we have some really amazing guests joining us for 
this very timely and very important topic specified on HIV prevention and mental health. And so I'm curious if we could get started with this very perhaps simple but fundamental question of if our guests could share a little bit about themselves and the work that they're currently engaged in. Manuel, could, could you kick us off with this with this question, please? Well, my name is Manuel, pronounce he, him. And um, with Chicanos por la Causa, we are a nonprofit here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm engaged with uh, populations that are at risk of uh, getting HIV, a high risk of getting HIV, and also with populations. And I have some friends that, yeah, they, they are HIV positive. So it is for me like a personal topic. And HIV prevention with Chicanos por la Causa looks like we are trying to reach out, especially to the immigrant population. Uh, we know that the 31% of the new cases are Latinos and immigrants. So it's uh, very important for us like to reach out and to, first of all, get everybody tested, no? Like the first step to make sure that uh, if uh, somebody is already carrying HIV, they can get connected to services, to healthcare services, also definitely to mental health services that are very uh, important. And then if not, we offer what is called PrEP. And PrEP means uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we want to make sure that everybody that is at high risk of contracting HIV can get in PrEP and uh, PrEP, it, it's in two shapes. One shape is a pill that people can take uh, regularly every day, like at the same time, preferably, and that will protect them from getting HIV and, and they have to continuously take the, the treatment. The other way is an injection, and this is like a new, new prevention method, which is an injection that is uh, every two months. And that way they can, you know, get protected mix that with uh, other ways of sexual health, like use of barrier methods and our uh, safer practices if they use like injectable drugs, no, that's, that's also another common way uh, in which people get HIV. So I, I would say that's like in a nutshell of how like I'm engaged in this fascinating world of like HIV prevention and connection to services. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Manuel. Such impactful work. And yeah, I think you, I think, I think you captured it well in a nutshell, as you said, <laughs> thank you so much. Ma Martin, uh, would you like to share a little bit about your, your work and the, the research that you're currently engaged in? Sure. Yeah. I'm a documentary filmmaker by practice and a lot of my work traverses mental health and communities of color really specifically black communities, um, disparities, barriers, stigmas, and uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing currently has been around um, archival practices and how we're documented and how we've been kind of um, documented and in, in, in the, narrat the narratives that have been told uh, throughout history and, and what that has looked like um, specific to mental health um, issues within black communities um, and, and really just writ large. So. That's been a little bit about the 12 projects that I think I have in going on right now, um, kind of specified. 
Thank you so much. Already thinking about HIV and um, I'm already connecting like HIV and archival practices and how we're storytelling and how, you know, when we tell stories about HIV and the way it's represented in media is so based in white cisgender gay male experiences and so i think already like connections are being made so i'm so excited and to to really start off the conversation we wanted to talk about in what ways do inequities in hiv prevention and mental health show up among historically marginalized communities and um martine we can start with you if that works oh sure let's start it out also, thank you, Manuel, for the work that you do as well. I'm very um, happy to be in conversation with you. I, I would say that, you know, and I'll just, I'll be transparent that um, I started out as a reporter in Chicago, then moved to New York and have done um, a bit of a reporting in New Orleans regarding mental health. So those are kind of the cities I know most about, and I'm starting to feel out um, my newfound home, Connecticut. Um, so I'll really speak to those inequities and how they've shown up. Um, Largely, I've seen in communities of color, specifically Chicago, New York, um, this this inability for folks to prioritize themselves, right? This time commitment of mental health being this kind of an aside that it's a luxury and not and uh, like a necessity. Just as we, you know, go to the dentist, but in specifically to the black community, there's just been this idea that, um, you know that therapy was traditionally for a, a white audience, right? It's for white folks and that we don't do that. We go to church or, you know, you pray it away and kind of things of that nature. Um, that stigma has been, I think this younger generation, um, you know, has definitely kind of knocked that down and turned it on its head and are really thinking through ways to take care of themselves to kind of, um, you know, break down these points of intergenerational trauma. Um, but even still, uh, you know, therapists, um, largely don't take insurance because the insurance companies take a large chunk of their income uh, to, you know, be insured and, and all those things. So it's, there's a barrier for finances for people to find mental health services that they can afford. Um, and sometimes, you know, while once a month or twice a month isn't enough, somebody may need to go like once or twice a week. And that's really kind of taxing on, you know, anyone's income, the, the average, you know, person's income. And then there's also this, this idea of, trying to find a mental health provider, it's a very daunting task. I kind of liken it to almost dating, right? You you kind of go on many dates, you kind of do a speed dating round and you kind of feel out who, which providers are kind of understanding your needs, at, you know, traversing that kind of barrier. Uh, so there's just so many points um, that kind of create these barriers, um, but there are also points of entry where there are, I think, other organizations that aren't traditional, um, you know, in the mental health space, or you're becoming a little bit more um, popular that offers services that, you know, may be able to accommodate folks that, or not finding people that that speak to them. Like it's, it's incredibly hard for black Americans to find um, a mental health provider that looks like them, right? I think about 2% or so of, of the psychologists that are registered in America are um, identify as Black Americans, right, or African Americans. So in and of itself, trying to find, you know, trying to find uh, folks within the community in group that um, can speak to a lot of the things that you're you're going through, um, it's it's extremely difficult. So I think with that, it just feels like a daunting task. And again, we go back to that first um, barrier being this idea of not needing it. It's not necessary. It's it's a luxury. 
um, and moving away from that. And even I think um, the idea of mental health, I mean, we've gone so far in the last five or seven years to call it mental health versus mental illness, right? That used to be the moniker. And I think a lot with the nomenclature changing, folks are starting to um, rethink the way that they come to mental health and, and, and their own mental health and how they're thinking through some of those ideas. Uh, I really appreciate that because I feel like especially working in case management, I was always helping people trying to navigate finding a therapist because it is so daunting. So I so resonate with everything that you said and that you do have to be so careful with therapists because particularly with white therapists who haven't done necessarily the self-reflexivity or change that self-reflexivity into action, well, intention doesn't mean supportive or humanizing, and then they can be even more harmful and cause more harm and just add to this list of institutionalized trauma. And so, yeah, so, so appreciate your contribution. And uh, Manuel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm also like, see like how the, the Black community is impacted and I find the parallels with the immigrant community and um, all the barriers that immigrants can find. And I would start with the language barriers, definitely. That's something that I have seen and I think of myself as privileged because I, I learned English. Like, you know, I probably have like more time in this country and that's how I learned the language. And also the fact that people are scared to ask for resources because they think it might impact their immigration status. So uh, I have a case of a person that like this person is HIV positive, but has been like so many months that uh, this person has been already in the United States and they didn't like approach or didn't know how to approach like the healthcare system and like luckily we found them in, at uh, one of our local bars where we did outreach that particular weekend. And then like that way we were able to establish for them like the treatment that otherwise like could have cost them then their life because they, they, they didn't want to come out as HIV positive because they thought that they, it might impact their chances of staying in the country. And then also the language, like, uh, definitely, like, we had to engage with them in Spanish, no, in uh, our native language. So definitely that's things that, that impact the stigma also of getting, like, uh, access to healthcare or access to mental health. It's high also in the immigrant population here in Arizona. We see that sometimes it's because, like, uh, they think it's not affordable, it's uh, not a, easy to, to find, easy to reach. And then like it ends up being like a second priority to paying the rent and, you know, getting groceries and like the basic needs that families may have. So yes, um, there are like other things that I, that come to my mind, but definitely I would say the intersectionality of, you know, not knowing the language. And also being scared of like, you know, that somebody may get reported to ICE or, or immigration agencies just because they're trying to access healthcare or access to mental health, that's put them at a higher risk. And we cannot accomplish the harm reduction that we want to accomplish with our program. 
Yeah, thank you both so much for your responses. I think you touched on so many crucial elements from like the, the language that we use to approach these issues. And Manuel, like you, you mentioned the language barrier, the, the stigma of accessing these resources, the affordability, the culture surrounding this as well. Like, is this important? You know, do we deem these resources to be important? That's so, so fundamental. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from, from the both of you, what, based on how involved the both of you are in very interesting yet unique ways of engaging with communities, because Martin, you're a documentary filmmaker and and Manuel, well, pre previous to starting our recording, you were mentioning that this weekend you were really busy, you know, extending resources to the community. And I'm just wondering, like, what continues to drive these inequities that we see in your respective fields of access to mental health and access to HIV prevention? What what continues to drive these inequities based on conversations that you have with members of our community? Um, and I'm curious, Martine, could you kick us off with this question? I'm doing a few stories right now, one of which is a young woman in New Orleans that I've been working with for a few years, and we're trying to solidify what her story is and, and how to tell it, but she has suffered from um, depression and anxiety for several years, has attempted, you know, um, to end her life a few times, and, and, and luckily she's still with us, um, and now has become this really brilliant mental health advocate. Um, but recently, you know, she lives in New Orleans where, you know, the climate change and weather and everything is impacting that city. I mean, we've seen it for years and still so much is not being done. But uh, I think it was not too long ago, um, Hurricane Ian hit and she had to evacuate and it was, um, it was a really fraught time for her in general because her father had just passed. and. Long story short, she was brought to um, another part of Louisiana to then try to get to Texas where she had friends and family waiting for her. And she just disclosed that she had mental health, you know, issues and was just seeking a place to be safe um, away from the hurricane and, and all these things. And somehow in, in that process, it, it got misconstrued that she was, um, you know, in danger of self-harming and that she needed to be immediately detained and so she was she was uh, not arrested but pretty much so you know taken in handcuffs taken out and understandably she was extremely um distraught about it and didn't understand what was going on because nobody was explaining it to her and it was taken to a mental health institution institutionalized and put in like a, her own cell, um, you know, and, and away from everybody isolated. So there's just so much on top of that, that this idea, and this has also been some stories I've heard from folks, both in New York and Chicago, this idea of criminalizing uh, mental health, right? Um, you know, this this idea of not wanting to obviously call the police is already um, another thing that the, the Black community wants to do. Um, but sometimes that's the only avenue to get, um, you know, help, especially getting somebody's in harm of um, hurting themselves or others. Uh, and so then what do you, what do? You, do? Um, you know, how do you get yourself to a safe place when this young woman is trying to do just that and then just essentially um, treated as though, you know, she, she's going to be harmed to herself or others. And she's she's very calmly telling them, like, all I need is X, Y, and Z. And, and you know, I, I've seen that happen. I've gone with folks and and, and I've seen how the, the intake process goes. Um, these, a lot of these behavioral health hospitals, I'll speak specifically to New York and Chicago, 
are not um, places that you feel like you can seek refuge or, or, or a place to, um, if you feel like you need maybe 72 hour hold just for somebody to just take care of you, right? So just make sure you take your medication to make sure you just get three basic meals a day, you know, very basic level things. Um, a lot of folks don't feel like they have they have anywhere to go because these institutions um, treat folks like they're criminals. And so you get in there and have to kind of wait a certain amount of period when it's up to this other entity to decide whether or not you get to leave and when you get to leave and how you get to leave, right? So there's all these things that the agency has taken from you when you're already in a precarious state. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have have seen that or experienced that they have a family member. It's, it's closer than a lot of folks think. Um, and so they already think like, well, that's not going to be me. I, I clearly can't have that avenue. And if I already don't have a mental health professional kind of in my corner, and even if you do, sometimes it doesn't even matter because those institutions don't speak to each other. So, so it's just like, where, where and how are we actually caring for folks with mental health? And, and you know, uh, people who are like in severe extreme cases that honestly can't take care of themselves or folks that are like this young woman, Jasmine, who knows herself, knows that hurricanes are a trigger um, for many reasons and just wanted to be safe. And, and this is how she was treated. So I, I think this, this idea of um, seeking mental health is still a nebulous thing for a lot of folks. It, it, yes, the therapist is a thing. Yes, maybe there are um, organizations and groups and stuff, but I, I think the resources aren't reaching folks or they don't understand that it's for them or they don't trust them, right? And it's, this is not a new thing, particularly within the Black community. I mean, communities of color definitely, but then Black community, you know, um, there are many myriad of reasons why uh, folks are untrusting of um, doctors and the medical profession um, at large. And it's also, we've seen it time and again um, that you're not heard, right? I, I mean, I've, I've had this happen to me where I've I've got, I'm, I have an autoimmune disease and I've been really, really sick. And, you know, because my genes, I look very young. Thank you. Great. But then I go into spaces and try to seek health, um, you know, for uh, like a, a strep throat and, and some other stuff. And, you know, I was kind of treated as though I didn't know what I was talking about, that I, you know, was like younger than I was. I was a child. So I was infantilized and also because I'm a black woman, I'm already kind of ignored and my 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 needs aren't met. Um, and it's, you know, then it's one of those things where I have to pull out my ID and my card, say, I'm a professor, I'm an adult, um, you cannot treat me this way, I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, to have to go to those extreme lengths, to have to make sure that I dress a certain way, even when I'm running a fever and taking myself to the emergency room, so I carry myself in a way so that I'm at least treated as a human being. Um, and so I think until we kind of train medical professionals to intake folks in a different way and to really rethink the way that we treat folks with mental health issues, it's, it, it, I, don't, I don't know if we can invite people to come to spaces and say like, this is a place for you. This is, these are resources available for you because they know how they're gonna be treated already. So it's, it's just, I think that's the barrier right there. I think like the inequities that I see and in, in the community that I work with have to do also with, we are talking about like, uh, and we mentioned this prior to the, um, to starting the recording, um, the, the, the spectrum, no? And like the, the, uh, different avenues that people in their lives, like they have, no? And I'm, and I'm uh, thinking specifically like, you know, the trans community, 
you know, in, in, in particular here in, in Arizona, uh, marginalized it is how they sometimes, um, in, in a, in a positive way, in a sex positive way, but also like, because they don't have other choice, they end up being sex workers and how like criminalized this is here in Arizona. And that's how many people like end up like getting HIV and on top of that, not having access to healthcare makes it like a, a very difficult experience for them. And being an immigrant, being homeless, having no other ways of income, this drives the inequities even like further, no, in, in um, terms of like getting the virus. And sometimes even the virus becomes a blessing for many folks that they can finally get access to some uh, funds that are reserved for people that have the virus. And then therefore they can like now afford to get a, a place that they can rent and then get money for getting like food. So it is a very complex issue that cannot be like compartmentalized and definitely we learn as we go and on how to engage and find creative ways of helping the community, but definitely the fact of like being there for them and like speaking the language. And I'm thinking we should also like not only uh, think of uh, Spanish speaking population because Latin America is so diverse. So we have many other different languages, even like native languages. And that also like impacts like the trust that they may have in us no? because like we, we we may encounter people that only speak um, the main language or the Quechua language. So it's it's an issue that we have to be like creative and like, unfortunately it is left to us nonprofits to do this work and to find the ways to help and support the population. Absolutely. I think it, there's a lot here in considering the connections between what you hear as, as policing in black communities, particularly in this case related to mental health and the impact of ICE in communities of immigrants and that there's this binary of institutionalization and removal from community or virtually no support. Like you have to make this what seemingly impossible choice of like being removed from your community and institutionalized. And do you do that to try to get some access to this care that that doesn't even indicate the quality of care or to be, you know, left with potentially no resources. And even then talking about needing these white US oriented institutional affirmations such as language or ID cards to just even get your foot in the door. And so I think something that has also come up continuously here is the urgency of these issues, right? In a lot of ways, this is this really is life or death and that's that's not overemphasizing it at all. And also attention of this urgency, but also attempting to bring folks with us in the educational journey and trying to, for lack of a better word, like bridge build in order to create these systems and structures that are validating and humanizing. And so how do you bring conversations about the urgency and importance of this topic to the classroom or teaching spaces? And or how do you bring these issues to the communities that you serve as well if you're educating folks in the community? So in my class, um, uh, one of the courses I teach here at UConn is a course um, specified on interviewing and documentary film. And 
kind of, uh, we look through not only just technically have to do that, but also the ethical considerations of interviewing somebody of um, asking someone to share their story with you. And so what a lot of, uh, what I start with with my students is this idea of, um, you know, stop thinking of people as case studies, rather think of them as you would your sibling or your parent. Um, you have to treat them respect and kindness and agency. Um, do not do extractive reporting, which has been done so often and so much. And um, a lot of the work that I do is, is kind of counter to what maybe I saw when I was coming up as a young reporter and, and what I was even you know trained as um, with documentary filmmaking. Um, go to folks and, and speak to them like humans. You know, you were you were asking a, it's a huge ask for somebody to take out their time to then give you their story. Um, so respect that. Um, there also needs to be a bit of um, sharing, you know, this this a bit of transparency of why are you the person to be telling the story? Why are you reporting with them? And spend time with people. Um, you know, and as not, sometimes you're on tight deadlines and I completely understand that we've all been there, but you must take the time to bring yourself into their space in any ways that they feel comfortable and good and, and give you that access. Um, it's huge, you know, privilege. Um, and so I really teach them to not be extractive um, reporters um, or filmmakers, but specifically with mental health, know, know your, like, do your homework always, right? You know, you go into your reporting, you, you know, um, you know, whoever you're speaking with, you know a little bit about their background, you do a pre-interview, maybe that's a phone call, maybe you've met them in person, you just kind of listen to them before you bring in, certainly with um, documentary filmmaking, before you bring in cameras, definitely have discussions with folks in that way. Um, and really just understand the landscape in which you're stepping into. Um, you know, um, so if you're doing a mental health story, um, understand how you're how you're going into the story and, and what this person's perspective is bringing to the larger conversation and how you you are doing that in a way that is careful and also respectful um, and give more well-rounded pieces i think oftentimes young reporters are kind of tasked with just getting the story and so they go in and just kind of get someone's diagnosis and their diagnosis becomes the story and that's who they are versus okay but what led to this person possibly having this diagnosis and x you know resources were not this or you know there's there's so many different um uh, intersectionalities to a human and so understand what that is their diagnosis and their trauma is not the story um, and so that's what I really try to to impart upon them. And um, I'm um, working on this longitudinal piece with my family right now. And it's about the silence around our mental health um, for bo both gener like both sides of the family, both maternal and paternal. Specifically with my maternal mother um, par um, side of the family, my mother is a psychotherapist, and my grandmother is um, has you know was a nurse in the army, and so they're both caretakers of, of different generations and different professions. But it kind of all stems from the same place um, that they didn't they weren't given those tools to cope and kind of traverse their own mental health stuff. So they kind of outsource in a way, right? Their, their care for other folks in hopes that they can kind of find their way. And so a lot of what we're talking about in this film is really thinking of mental health, not as a um, deficit, but an additive, like what traditions and, um, you know, things are in place in, in, in um, kind of, uh, I guess, in spite of, you know, mental health issues. What if we created that has actually been our way of, of coping and, and but it may not look the same to everybody um and what 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 does that mean and what is what do you pass down in the wake of those intergenerational um circumstances um 
and again, it really just comes to like how we talk about it. And um, I'm, I'm happy to see that a lot of films um, and reporting writ large have been a lot more in depth and a lot more, and I hate the, this term, but humanizing and it. That should be, that should be a, a no brainer, right? That should be really base level. This is how we go into doing these stories, but um, it hadn't been for a very, very long time and a lot of mistakes were made. Um, and so, I also talk to my students about being careful about which spaces you think you need to be in. I think there's this tendency to be like, we need to be inside the hospital. We need to be inside the institutes. We need to see a person like at their worst. And that just is a no, you know, you don't need to get somebody on their worst day sobbing and, um, you know, just in a really vulnerable state to tell your story. You can come back, you know, the next day you can wait. The story will still be urgent. What, as you were saying, um, I think Kelly said this, and Omar maybe a bit too, the urgency of these both, um, you know, the work that Manuel and, and myself do. I was hoping, you know, because I started this work almost a decade ago, that this would kind of maybe not be as in vogue anymore. That by the time I got to the point of, you know, getting these these stories out, that maybe like, oh, I'll have to, this would be old news. And sadly, it's not. Um, you know, what what it has changed is that there's more conversation about it, especially within um, the black community and the black women are a lot more vocal about it. So that's really great. But um, I think it's, again, um, folks that make media really have to be careful and really need to um, understand their place and positioning for changing the conversation. Thank you so much, Manuel. Yes, well, I think a challenge that I see of like bringing the issues of like mental health awareness and also like the prevention of HIV is uh, so the, the how diverse the population is. We're trying to reach out to as many different populations that we can think of. And we do that with trying to make it like fun and positive way to talk about mental health, to talk about sex, to talk about prevention. So I think that's a, a challenge and also like, you know, a way for us to be more impactful and also definitely creating a safe space for people to come and making sure that they uh, know that we are on their side, that we don't belong to, you know, any governmental organization or some some places that could be for them scared to, to knock the door. And also, yeah, like being aware of humanizing the experience, making it uh, very dignified. I don't know, I probably just want to um, finally mention that in like the statistics are against us, uh, like unfortunately now, in terms of like uh, the, the number of people that are getting diagnosed with HIV and definitely that would in, impact their mental health. So um, it's for us a challenge and a need that it's there. And it gives me more passion to do my work, but sometimes it can be frustrating. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying our best to, 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 to make fun and, you know, to engage everybody, but, um, it's, it's very important to keep in mind that it, it, it's a very, uh, dramatic issue. Absolutely. I, I so appreciate this, this bringing up of the tension of both. There needs to be urgency around this and something that is definitely disappointing on as in being a member of the society is the fact that we still need to tell people this is urgent, but also that tension and 
the need to not capitalize on people's trauma and respecting their autonomy and how they want to engage in the spaces that, you know, they are potentially letting us be in. And I and I love that piece on, on really being reflective on like, do I need to be a part of that space? Do I need to be a part of that space in that time? Um, and particularly at that time. So I really appreciate that. And I'll, I'll pass it to Omar to close this out with the final question. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. And and thank you both, Martin and, and Manuel, for the work. Really, really commend you both for the work that you're engaged in. And I dare say for the positivity that you bring to the work that you engage in, you know, because it's it's not it's not easy. It's really, really not easy to do this work. And there's so much intergenerational, personal and so many challenges and so many barriers societally that we engage in, you know, that it's like, I've, I've been in spaces before where folks, because of the negativity that they've engaged in, they then bring that to the spaces that they try to help folks in. And that's, it's like fighting fire with fire, you know, that's not gonna create change. And so I think the both of you, the progress that you've seen, even though it has been challenging, the positivity that you bring, I think that's what's hopefully moving slow, you know, moving the needle in a positive direction, maybe slowly, you know, you know, but it's just, it's, it's very beautiful what the both of you are doing. And I'm just wondering, trying to, I, I, I always love to try to end the podcast on a positive note, like, what, what does the future look like? Like, what does forward look like for the both of you? Like, are there any pieces of advice? That you would like to share to researchers, to nonprofit individuals and professionals, to students, policymakers that want to engage in this work. Like, what is one piece of advice based on your professional experience, based on your personal experience, your community-based experience, for that matter? Like the folks that you engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, what what can you leave our audience with? Um, and I and I wonder, uh, Manuel, could you kick us off with this question, please? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think to me, like I, I feel like for the future would be seeing the people that like live with HIV, how sometimes that they can definitely feel down, but like other other times, like they definitely enlightening us, even even not know that that, that work with them and that probably we don't have like such a personal experience with um, the issue, but that they continue and you know like do their best with the best that they can with their families with their partners and you know like they have hope no like they 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 don't lose that hope so if they don't lose that hope and then and, and they are like personally affected by by the issue like why shouldn't we no like like our our our, our we we acknowledge that we all need to take care of ourselves too but like the fact that they live with hope makes me also want to live with that hope. And on the other side, uh, with our conversations with our, our professional partners, that some of them are, you know, representing the research uh, companies, no, that are trying to find a cure for HIV. The, I, I think the cure is inside. So we're getting to these new medications that are working for longer. So maybe one day it's just going to be a vaccine or like a, a treatment that like is just taken once. And, and with that, like people will be cured. 
but um, yes, that's that's my hope, and that's what I think uh, it's positive about the future. Oh, good, Max. That was really beautiful, Manuel. I don't know if I can add anything to that. Um, I would just say um, for everyone in, in the world, I just hope that everyone um, seeks mental health services before they're in crisis. Um, and we were speaking about this a little bit before we started the podcast, but I tell my students, you know, um, nothing is more important than your health, your mental health, your physical health, every that's 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 the most important thing. So this class is great. doesn't trump that. So please take care of yourselves. Be um, mindful of when you need rest and do that because this grind culture, you know, that capitalism has kind of had us on for way too long, far too long, is not it. It's just not the business. And I think if anything, we saw that during the early parts of the pandemic when we, we had to pause and then everyone started to shift, you know, the way in which they did things in the world. So um, I think there's a little bit of, of uh, I guess, wisdom we can pull from that. And then um, I'd say to folks that are doing this work as researchers, um, reporters, documentarians, and, and all the above, um, you know, really getting rid of this idea of voice of the voiceless. We are not giving anyone a voice. They have their voices. Um, someone is giving you their story. It, it should be a collaborative effort. And um, we're even starting to move away from definitely in the filmic community, these um, kind of colonialist language around filming. Um, so we don't say subjects anymore for people in the films that are participants, right? Um, we don't talk about shooting you say you're filming you know there's there's just so much these little things really do go a long way and the intentionality um with which you begin your um story with the collaboration with whomever you're doing it with um just really be clear about that and check yourself you know <laughs> like every every moment so yeah I love that. What a beautiful, what beautiful notes to end on. You know, in COVID, I feel like we're almost going back to being pushed to go back to normal. But I feel like being like, hey, wait, stop. Like, we need to keep in mind what we learn, which I, I think is really reflective of what you all said, that both keeping hope in mind because there are people doing work, right? Like Manuel said about reaching toward a cure and a vaccine for HIV, however that looks and both that community and collaboration really has to be a partnership and it has to be something where like you said martine we're like we're not and never have been giving voices to the voiceless but ensuring that um community is is something that is structural and that we're embedding community in these structural elements too and finally leading by example you know checking ourselves and also in you know investing in our mental health in support of um these critical community structures that that we aim to build so thank you so much for being with us today it was such a great conversation and i'm sure we will hear from you again soon thank you as always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart. 